Welcome to another edition of the Positive Pedagogy for Sport Coaching Podcast, where today the discussion focuses on a paper titled A Move Towards Reconceptualising Direct Instruction in Sport Coaching Pedagogy by authors Edward Cope and Chris Cushion, both from Loughborough University. Today I have a guest called Dr. Edward Cope, who is a lecturer, I believe, at, uh, you might have got that wrong, at uh, Loughborough University. He's also worked for the Soccer Association or the Football Association back in the UK and done some work in there related to talent uh, development and things like that. Um, he was a former PhD student of mine, so I will admit my bias uh, in terms of Ed ahead of the time. Um, so good morning, Ed. Thanks, Dave. You're, you're the only person that I know, by the way, apart from my mum that still calls me Edward. So. Um... I noticed that quite a lot with uh, with you. You're very formal with uh, with the introduction, but no, thank you uh, for the opportunity to chat. Uh, I know that we chat informally about a lot of this stuff anyway, so um, I guess this is a continuation of some of those informal discussions that we have. Yeah, that's good. And um, Ed, we'll sort of talk a little bit about your background, but we kind of met when you were an undergraduate student at Leeds Met way back in the day. That must be what now, fifteen years ago more or less 2006 yes um and then we sort of uh, got together again when you did your phd and your phd was on um, a study of uh, children's coaches in sport yeah um do you want to tell us a little yeah. bit about that yeah sure so yeah so i guess we you you were my university lecturer um when i was a an undergraduate sports coaching student at leeds beckett university or as is now Leeds Beckett, Leeds Metropolitan University at the time. Um, and then I was involved uh, with Steve initially when we, uh, when Steve and some colleagues landed a, a seed grant study. So it was kind of an in-depth look at um, the practices of university coaches, at the, um, well, the university, some of the university coaches at the time. And that kind of played out over a season. Um, so I was kind of served as a bit of a research assistant, um, albeit I was still an undergraduate with a few other students in my cohort. Um, and then as Steve said, I, I then went on to the University of Worcester where I got a master's studentship um, alongside some teaching, which was great experience and a really great environment there. Um, and then whilst that was kind of coming towards a conclusion, um, applied for a PhD with Steve, who had, who had at that point moved to the University of Bedfordshire, and um, yet yeah, undertook my uh, my PhD investigating the, the the pedagogical practices of children's sports coaches uh, in football and swimming in the context of uh, school and kind of recreational sport club. Um, and then from there, Steve and I have continued to collaborate and continue to work together on various different projects. Um, and that's kind of six years on from from completing the PhD. Um, and in that time, um, I've had lectureships at Sheffield Hallam University, the University of Hull. Um, and then I worked at the Football Association, as Steve alluded to, for two and a half years in kind of curriculum development and, and learning design um, before uh, starting at, uh, as a lecturer in, in sport coaching at Loughborough University uh, at Christmas last year or around that time. So I guess that's, uh, that's the bio. No, that's good. Um, I think it gives a good context for the, the discussion. So recently, I know you've been working with Chris, who again will admit is a, a colleague of ours who we've done various projects with uh, alongside a chap called Mark Partington. The four of us have kind of tried to move some work forward on coaching behavior and um, that, you know, things surrounding coaching pedagogy, uh, one of which is coaching behavior. So your um, recent paper that just came out is called a move towards reconceptualizing direct instruction in sport coaching pedagogy and comes largely from this notion of probably sport coaches throwing the proverbial baby out of the bathwater in terms of seeing direct instruction as something yeah. that might not be something that's orientated towards promoting athlete learning but we'll go into that yeah. so, um so can you before we sort of get into the paper in a lot more depth, can you give us a background, his yeah. background to instruction in sport coaching and 
what the traditional views yeah. have been. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I think this is a really interesting one. And um, when we wrote the paper, I guess that we were thinking about initially from a range of different perspectives. And in the end, we decided on kind of the terminology kind of aspect of kind of uh, questioning people's understanding or how the field has, has understood this term. And so if we go back and I guess the the motor control literature in the kind of late 80s, early 90s is a good place to start when thinking about the use of instruction or, or where um, scholars in coaching talked about uh, instruction. But, but as I say, it wasn't so much from a pedagogical perspective, but more from a motor control and a skill acquisition perspective. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a paper in 96 published by Moores and Franks. And I think this offers a really useful starting point to think about how they talk about instruction. And if we think about how they speak about it there, so I kind of have, have got some direct quotes from that paper that I would kind of just like to, to talk about. So Moores and Franks write that instruction requires the application of skills um, that range from the planning and organisation of learning experiences to the presentation of instructional and feedback information. They continue to write that effective instruction involves selecting and orchestrating appropriate behaviour rather than mastering and applying a few generic teaching skills. So I think that, you know, if we go back to that paper some 20, uh, 20 odd years ago, um, I felt that they talked about instruction in quite a sophisticated way in the sense of, um, you know, it's an approach, it's not a single behaviour. Um, they talk about it as though um, kind of that there's an, there's an application element to it. It impacts learning experiences. Um, and so I, I just felt that, that, that type of work get easily gets easily dismissed. And if I think about kind of coaching research that's been published since, um, when they talk about instruction or when they talk about athlete or coach-centred, um, I'm not sure how much of that work refers to some of the earlier seminal work in this area, such as the Moores and Franks uh, paper, plus, plus closely related papers. Um, so I guess that was kind of a, a bit of a historical view, really. And... Um, and then if we look at the work that's been done since that, so uh, the systematic observation work, which we know has been kind of um, well, well, well kind of written about, it's been a very popular method, um, less so recently, but certainly in the early 90s through to probably the mid 2000s, um, you know, it was used widely. And, and I think, again, there was a paper by Gilbert and Trudell, or it might have been Trudell and Gilbert, I can never quite remember which way around this paper was, but they identified kind of the, the systematic observation um, made up kind of quite a large percentage of, of methodologies used in coaching at that point. So, and this was in about 2006. We subsequently did, um, and then there was the Khan Systematic Review in published in 1999, looking at the use of systematic observation, which myself, Steve and Mark Partington then picked up and published in 2016, 17 in the Journal of Sports Sciences, where we basically continued where Khan left off. And I guess one of the key things that we found from that was that the use of systematic observation started to decline. Um, now, the purpose of systematic observation in terms of its usage is to ultimately measure and record the coaching behaviours that, that coaches use when in training and, and, and matches. Mm -hmm. um, but what it does is it, it isolates behaviours. So it kind of takes things like questioning, feedback, instruction, and looks at how many of those things the coaches are, are using. So the frequency, which get, then gets converted into a percentage and a, and a rate per minute. And so if we look at that kind of notion of instruction, it's a far more specific and, and less wide ranging. And we kind of do nod to that in the paper to say that, you know, as people who have done systematic observation work, we have almost contributed towards this quite uh, narrow-minded view of what instruction is as an isolated or single behaviour. Um, whereas if we look at the kind of the cognitive load literature, and even if we refer back to how Moores and Frank spoke about uh, instruction, um, they talk about it as kind of more of an approach, um, uh, more of a style, if you like, rather than uh, an accumulation of, of, single of, of kind of single instructional episodes. So I think that like we've tried to be honest and I guess note that we've kind of contributed towards this confusion, which I think is an important thing to do and an important thing to flag. Um, you know, people change and they develop and they gain more understanding and knowledge over time. And, and so that was a bit of a flag to that. But, you know, if we look at historically instruction has, has been um, used, you know, has been identified as being a, a very commonly used behavior from coaches as a consequence of systematic observation work. Um, 
and if we look at the, the kind of the discussion and again we've written in these ways as well um, is that we've been quite dismissive of instruction as a single behavior in terms of saying that it controls uh, it controls the decision making in terms of athletes don't get the opportunity to do so they don't get the ownership um, and when we look at instruction from a from a kind of a an educational psychology perspective and how they talk about it then I think that opens up new ways to see this term yeah, that might be a good segue as we sort of move on. Uh, I just want to say that the the paper that we're talk, kind of using as a bit of a preface, uh, we'll make it uh, a copy available to like an online link or whatever. But it was published in um, a, a, an extremely practitioner-heavy um, outlet, so that um, we try to. Um, I don't want to use the word, but I'm going to use it, dilute the message so that it was very meaningful to um to us who work in various different contexts so university lecturers can um, use this paper as a basis for some things we can use it with students we can send it out to practitioners out there working in the field where we um you've written the paper so it, it is applicable across various different contexts um so the second uh thing we were going to talk a little bit about were this notion that instruction that you've pointed out was that it maybe wasn't defined or it was defined in sort of general terms rather than specific terms in the coaching mm. literature. And also maybe the, the view of instruction was that it was something that was commonly um, used by coaches, but it was something that was done to the athletes by the coaches. So it's maybe being given yeah. a little bit of a, a, a demonized kind of view by certain constituents mm. particularly academics so we, the question was what were some of the responses to a traditional view of instruction um do you want to talk a little bit more about each of those things yeah yeah i think i think the first place to start there is um there's probably some been some slippage in in how the term's been spoken about and used and and i think the point in the in the article again was um was that there's almost become a, we've almost got to a point where there's an assumption that um, we know what people mean and understand by this term when we say it. And so if we were to look at published work, how many uh, explain and describe what they mean by athlete an athlete-centered approach? Like, do they characterize that? Do they be more specific in terms of what that actually means and looks like? And the same when they talk about a coach-centered approach. And the connotations over the years has been that athlete-centered approaches related to behaviors such as questioning or a question approach and a coach-centered approach has been associated with high levels of coach instruction um now the i guess the issue with that or, or straight away it kind of flags up that well even an athlete set you know if we take an athlete-centered approach as being based on a question approach you know you, you I don't know any coaching session whereby you can question the whole of the time. Like there has to be some instruction at some point. And so these things are rarely discussed. There's rarely any blurring of the lines. Um, and when you actually think about it in terms of, well, what would, how would I know that I'm seeing an athlete centered coaching session? Or how do I know that I'm seeing a coach centered coaching session? I think that we'd have, I think we'd probably be able to say what that is, but that isn't discussed in the literature overly well. So I think the basis of the, the article was, was around, how well these terms are discussed and described and is there a common understanding that when we use certain terms is everybody on the same page and knowing of what they mean now i think where instruction is concerned it is confusing because there's instruction as a single behavior and then there's an instructional approach and they're two different things um, and so i think that as i say the systematic observation literature has maybe contributed to a, a narrow-minded singular view of instruction being a behavior and therefore an accumulation of being in, uh, of instructional behaviours, i.e. the athlete, is it, whereby as a coach you are instructing the athlete to do certain things, is what's led to this association with coach-centred coaching or in the, in the kind of teaching styles kind of literature, this, this command style of, of teaching. So um, I don't know if that's answered the question, Steve, but... Well, um, I think you just made a good point, though, just so we're all on the same page. So you talked about... Um, kind of the Moston and Ashworth kind of idea of um, styles. So yeah. do you want to talk a little bit about that? So what's on one end, what's on the other, and some of the assumptions we make about when we use different styles with our learners? 
Yeah, yeah. So again, um, we end up with this dichotomy a lot of the time, don't we, where we polarise um, the style. So the 11 styles of, of Moshna and Ashworth running from um, command at one end to like, pure discovery at the other, um, we kind of almost say that one's good and one's bad and that's clearly not helpful. And, you know, Moshna and Ashworth, as I understand it, you know, kind of saw that as a spectrum and therefore it, it's about selecting um, the styles that are most appropriate for the context and the athletes that you're working with at that point in time or, or responsible for coaching or teaching. Now, again, you know, where, where I've seen Moshe and Ashworth talking about, spoken about in the coaching or, or pedagogy literature, um, you know, I haven't seen a, a great deal of explanation. Now, people can correct me if I'm wrong with this, um, but I haven't seen um, that work done. And if we break down the, the kind of the different styles, an explanation of each styles seems quite, um, quite limited. So again, what, what Mosh and Ashworth have done is they've kind of associated certain behaviors or uh, approaches to certain styles, i.e. command style is associated with high levels of coach instruction or teacher instruction. And then if we, as we move more towards kind of the, the pure discovery, um, we move more towards kind of a, a questioning approach from the, from the point of view of what the coach or teacher does. But as I kind of alluded to, you know, the, I think I don't know if a coaching session ever exists where there isn't some form of instruction at some point. And so like, where are the blurring of the lines between them? Um, and I'm not, I'm not confident that that's being clearly explained. Um, and as I say, how many, how many times does someone have to instruct for it to be considered a command style of coaching or teaching? Um, you know, I think these are things which um, have been avoided or certainly from my knowledge and understanding of the area have been avoided. Um, within the within the literature but the notion is that depending on where the athlete is at with their learning of a concept a skill or whatever they might need certain things at that time as opposed to other yeah. things so and the reality know. is and, and sorry on that point steve the reality is is that you're going to be using multiple styles in any one session so it's not like for this session, I'm going to be command based or this session, I'm going to be guided discovery or this session, I'm going to be self teach or reciprocal or whatever the other styles are. You know, it's often the case that maybe for this component of the session, I might need to act or behave or, or, or approach this situation as a coach or a teacher in a certain way. Whereas for other parts of the session, I can maybe be a little bit different. And, and so it's that kind of how do the, how do the styles kind of talk to each other and how do they link together because over the course of a session today, you're probably going to be drawn upon multiple styles, not, oh, just this style for this session. Well, and also one thing that comes to mind is you're not going to draw on one particular uh, form of instruction and or style for a particular type of teaching. So, for example, if you want to teach someone a skill, that doesn't mean to say you have to just use um, uh, like a, a, a command style, you could use yeah. some more discovery notions and the same for tactics, right? Sometimes there are certain tactics you yeah. want players to learn and you might need to direct, give some direct uh, command type of instruction. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because I think that's where the field seems to have got to a little bit as well in terms of associating um, kind of practice design with certain instructional or behaviours. Um, or certain approaches by a coach. So, again, it's it's it seems to be um, uncritically uh, accepted that uh, game-based coaching approaches are lend themselves to more of a questioning approach. Um, maybe the coach not doing or saying as much, um, or certainly not instructing as much. Whereas, you know, I, I'm not sure on what level or or the basis of that argument, because you know, if we think about it practically. Um, like you like you refer to then if you've got you know novices or beginner athletes and you want to put them in a game-based situation however complex that is or you know again you know in terms of the modifications that are made on it um you know there's still obviously a place to to instruct within those situations um and so again what what tends to happen is is that kind of the whole game-based coaching approaches and um, certain behaviors get banded together as though there's a there's a causal relationship between them and um, you know, I, I don't think there is. So I think it's about 
you know, considering what are the, the needs and wants and the, the kind of developmental level of the athlete. And that should probably be the starting point for the, the style of approach or behaviours that, that are adopted. Yeah, and I do want to... Even that in itself. Yeah, and I do want to yeah. acknowledge some of the work by Mitch Hewitt, who uh, was formerly with Tennis Australia, uh, Shane Pill, Brendan Susie, and um, the work they've been doing. They did some work with tennis coaches out in Australia and found that, yes, tennis coaches did use a limited amount of Mostert and Ashworth's um, styles, so a quite command and practice type of styles. Um, yeah. And the argument was that that could be quite limiting for those people that they were coaching and looking at opportunities about how coaches could um, use a wider range of those styles. But like I said earlier, the, the baby out of the bathwater moment is that, and you talk about this in the paper, is that we've used terms like roll out the ball and that the game is the teacher. And so we have yeah. um, you know, this notion that, oh, we'll just set up a small-sided modified game three on three and uh, let kids play and that somehow they're supposed to work out how to get the ball from point A to point B. Um, if it isn't. Well, this is, yeah, and this is the point about the cognitive load theory stuff. So John Sweller, who was, I guess, the, 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 primary, um, the primary author who, who wrote and I think even coined the concept cognitive load theory, he talks about kind of two different like, levels of knowledge. And I think this is a useful way to, to know kind of like, or understand cognitive load theory and that's kind of primary biological knowledge which is you know so you often hear don't you that um oh well look at young children they don't need direct instruction like when they're learning to walk or when they're learning to run or when they're learning to swallow or eat or whatever it happens to be you know they they pick it up they they can do it by watching and i think that gets taken as the basis then for so why is a why is a coach needed to give instruction because if you put them in the environment they'll work it out for themselves and and uh, Sweller talks about that, as I say, as primary biological knowledge and secondary biological knowledge. And the primary biological knowledge refers to basically anything that the human being needs to be able to do to survive. So we learned, we've learned to do things over millions and millions of, gener of, of years to do these things, because if we can't do them, then basically we wouldn't live. Um, and so that's where that kind of self-learning comes from. Um, now, the, primary, the, the secondary biological knowledge refers to things that are we have to teach um so or certainly where teaching uh, improves the effectiveness and the efficiency of learning new skills so things like um you know kind of learning any skills in in whatever sport it is you know having a, a well-qualified or certainly a, a well-informed uh, teacher or coach who can give good instruction and again that's that's the point it's you know not all instruction is equal you know you can get bad instruction as much as you can get good instruction so you know if you've got somebody who's well informed who can give good instructional support and guidance then that will um, increase the effectiveness and efficiency of, of what's to be learned um, and you know in the principle of cognitive load theory for novices which is the critical point so I think that's one of the other things that we talk about in the paper and might be drifting off on a tangent here but you know the, the thing about um, the educational psychology literature when they talk about direct instruction is they're very clear that this is the approach for novices or beginners because they need more guidance they need um, they need to ensure that their working memory isn't overburdened. Um, they have more limited experience that they can't, so they can't draw upon as much from the, the long-term memory. Whereas um, as people become more proficient at learning something, we, we reduce that support, we take it away, we scaffold um, in, a, in a manner which means that by the time they, they reach a level of proficiency or expertise, giving too much instruction actually harms their learning. So that I think is the other kind of distinction that's quite nice because that I haven't seen spoken about in the sports coaching pedagogy or literature in the same way. You know, we, we talk about some of these terms as though they're catch-all for everybody. Well, I think um, when we're playing a game, there's lots of things going on. And I know we might have individual sport coaches listening as well, but it, their principles apply. Um, there's lots of things going on when we participate in a learning context. And so um, trying to think about ways and, and some of the reading I've done with Barbara Oakley's stuff out of Stanford, she talks about focus mode and diffuse modes and trying to have opportunities in practice where we are more in focus mode when we're in diffuse mode because diffuse mode maybe is a free play activity or something where we need some more implicit learning going on. 
um, mm. because that encourages that creativity and innovation. But there are probably more focus modes that we need to get into at times, which maybe are a little bit more amenable to direct instruction so that we can talk in those or give them opportunities in that diffuse mode to apply the concepts that they're learning through that more potentially direct instruction. Um, some of the techniques yeah. that we've got. I think got... it's probably. Go on. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's probably important to clarify in terms of um, what we actually mean by direct instruction and, and again, if we take, um, you know, Rosenshine's principles, so he, you know, he talks about the principles of direct instruction. And, and I think that they're really easy to understand. And the article that he had published in 2012 in the American Educator, which is a free to access article, mm -hmm. uh, if you just type it into Google. Um, and again, very practitioner focused. Um, and, and, and he talks through kind of the, the principles and why they're necessary from a learning science perspective. And I think, he, you know, that paper is very digestible. Um, but if we take those, then, as I say, he kind of things like questioning and scaffolding, um, independent learning, all things which have been associated with an athlete centered approach um, within the coaching literature are all things that he considers part of a direct instruction approach. Mm -hmm. So. This is where the terminology and the semantics is quite important because if we're clear and we're able to articulate what we mean when we talk about these different approaches and what they encompass, then it allows the reader and it allows kind of coaches to understand more clearly um, what we're actually suggesting. Um, so again, all of these things will, will not in the coaching literature have been considered as part of a direct instructional approach. Um, so it's quite interesting that the educational psychology literature sees it in these ways. Yeah, and I want to just so it says here provide models, right? In Russian sounds work. So an idea in soccer might be you want players to learn how to attack the goal, and you you ultimately want players to be able to be creative and come up with their own ideas about how to move the ball forward yeah. from point A to point B. But the notion is that yeah. if you've not got very experienced players, you might say, right, I want you to get the ball from the halfway line and score a goal. Um, but yeah. it, it, you know, beat these two defenders. Say there's four attackers, um, but they have no what we would call pattern of play, right? So the notion is that you might teach them a few patterns or one or two patterns. Yes, sure. Essentially uh, or ostensibly, you're providing a model, and then you might yes. say, right, let's let you try and work together to come up with a third or fourth way of getting the ball from here, which work a little bit outside or modify what I've just shown you. Yeah. And I think you make a good point there, Steve, because if we think about this work, a lot of it is, um, has been researched in the context of secondary school education. And so um, I guess the caveat to this is like, it doesn't directly correlate all of the time to practical context, practical teaching and learning context, such as coaching and teaching. Um, but nonetheless, the weight of evidence is so strong that it would be remiss of us to dismiss it. Um, so it, you know, this, this work hasn't been discussed. It is a, in, in, in regards to coaching, it is early days. Um, and so I'm not saying that it's a perfect fit. Um, but, but at the same time, I think there's, there's enough there to, for us to think about and consider how we can adopt some of those principles and see how they work, um, in coaching and teaching. Yeah. And then, you know, just as an example, before we move on, another way, like when we use questions, it's some questions need to be more focused, directed at individuals. Yeah. Um, you know, like uh, Douglas Mov talks about, you know, pop quizzes or cold calling. Um, some could be a little bit more open where the, the group uh, are able to answer. Um, but if you are using whole groups, like I say, directing to different people, but you might use small groups, ask open-ended questions. So it's a matter of, again, yeah. that uh, what I think was in the teaching literature, that accordion principle, you know, when to spread out the accordion and when to yeah, push yeah, it back, yeah. to go back together um, when you're coaching. So the, and that's the most important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the most important point about all of this, Steve. Um, it's knowing, you know, nothing's rarely... Generally speaking, nothing's good or bad. You know, we can only say something's kind of inappropriate, is more appropriate or less appropriate, depending upon the context. So you make a great point there about questioning. Again, it's written about now quite widely that we should be striving for open-ended questions all of the time or higher order questions. Um, and again, I guess that we in some way have contributed towards that. But 
but actually it's not about kind of the number of higher order questions or open-ended questions that are get asked it's more okay well what's relevant to um to these learners at this point in time so you know checking for understanding can be perfectly acceptable um you know, when you talked about some other questioning strategies there about cold calling and you've written yourself about kind of different questioning strategies, you know, such as the reflective toss and, um, and uh, what are the couple of other ones that you've written about? Well, uh, Grahane's Gra uh, debate of ideas. Yes, debate of ideas, Grahane's debate of ideas and so on. So, you know, again, these are all really useful tools for coaches and teachers to think about, and it gives them a framework and some strategies to work from. But it doesn't necessarily give them this is what you should be doing all of the time, you know, and this is where we have to help teach coaches and teachers when to use some of these things, when they're more appropriate, when they're less appropriate, and kind of arm them with, with a range of different kind of tools so that they can then draw upon whichever's most relevant and appropriate at any given point in time. Yeah, and to close this question off, what you just explained there is the hallmark of an expert teacher or coach, knowing when yes. to do, and it's a bit like an expert performer when you're playing, um, you know, when to pass, dribble and shoot, uh, and what might be most appropriate at that particular time. Um, so we talked a little bit about us contributing to some of the ways in which we might have polarized different things and made them look good and bad. Um, what tools have researchers used to measure, measure, measure the broader notion of instruction? I know we talked um, and how useful have these tools been? And what are some other ways that we might um, help not reduce instruction to a, you know, a narrow um, definition? Yeah, so um, we, we spoke at the start about systematic observation and you know, I, I still see a lot of usage in systematic observation from the benefit or from the perspective of, um, you know, giving, you know, an actual uh, understanding of what it is that coaches do, either in training or matches. But I think perhaps the way that the, the data gets recorded, get recorded and then reported um, definitely doesn't help with respect to um, or, or, or rather contributes towards this polarisation uh, because, it's almost as if um, people are looking for this perfect kind of behavioral profile as though we should have X amount of one behavior and X amount of another. So if used in that way, then it's heavily reductionist. And I don't think anybody would agree that, that that's the way to use it or the best way to use it. But again, the earlier work uh, in systematic observation kind of did that because it was a lot of studies focused on expert coaches with a view to saying, well, if we understand what expert coaches do, then we can probably copy that and get the same outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's always a danger with these type of things. Um, and so we've got to be mindful that we don't look at it in terms of comparing one coach's behavioral profile with another and making some kind of, or make coming to some kind of conclusion in terms of which coach is more effective or better based on their behavioral profile. So, um, we've got to avoid that and and i think that the the definitions perhaps of behaviors at times have been quite narrow which has again limited um how we understand these things and so i think systematic observation is a great tool but it has to be used with other methods um both in the form of other forms of observation and kind of interviews as well in terms of getting insight from the coaches in terms of what they were trying to do and from the athletes as well in terms of how the um, coaching was received so i think it's it's that type of methodology which has perhaps led to some level of polarization. Um, but at the same time, um, we've got to also avoid just perceptions of what coaches think that they do uh, through interviews alone or, or that type of method, which again doesn't tell us anything about what coaches actually do. Um, and, and so it's kind of finding that common ground in some ways and it's maybe having broader definitions available. So trying to look at, um, coaching or teaching practice from a, a wider observational lens in terms of kind of defining approaches or having kind of characteristics of different approaches and therefore um, almost kind of talking about the approaches coaches use rather than their singular behaviors. Um, you know, yeah. kind of trying to report uh, what coaches do and when they do it so that there's some level of uh, insight into the, the coach decision-making process and whether what they're doing and when they're doing it is, is at a relevant and appropriate time. Um, so I think these type of things are needed uh, and required to, to get more and, and to be able to identify the complexities. 
but, but again, you know, in any form of educational research, these things are incredibly difficult because there's so many things going on at once and there's so many variables at play in terms of what does and doesn't impact athlete learning. Um, and so from that perspective, if we're trying to control for everything, then we're probably not undertaking this work in the context in which they occur. Um, and we're probably manufacturing or manipulating it too much that it, it doesn't represent like what it's actually like. So it's a massive, massive challenge, um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to do it and we shouldn't strive to measure um, the impact that certain approaches are having on athlete learning or not. Unfortunately, that means probably more sophisticated methodologies, which include randomized control trials. And, um, but, you know, again, that, that comes at a, a significant cost and, you know, it requires significant time. And we know that these things are, are difficult, um, even from, you know, us working in, in, in academia um, to be able to do some of this stuff. Yeah, and I think one thing I take from your work, uh, sorry, from your uh, description is that this notion that coaching context is extremely important. I think some of the systematic observation work, I can't speak this morning, um, was done with expert coaches or, you know, like the initial studies with John Wooden to create this sort of yeah. behavioral profile. And then it's assumed that we can take that model of what yeah. good coaching is and just transplant that model into say an environment where we're coaching kids where, you know, his athletes knew him. He spent lots of time during the day with them in a sort of more or less professional coaching context He'd explain what their athlete roles were, starters, you know, the subs and the the scout team coming in. Uh, whereas in a in a junior sport context, that's probably not the way forward. And so we would expect to see a broader range of behaviours uh, around instruction and these sort of uh, support behaviours that we were that we were talking about with with say children's coaches, which you may have found in in some of the studies. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think on that point as well, again, you know, and we, we make a flag to it in the paper, but I think, again, direct instruction or instruction has been associated with like being quite critical and quite negative in our connotations as a coach. And not for one second are we saying that that's appropriate, um, but these links do seem to get made quite regularly. And so, again, it's why do these links get made? Um, you know, there's nothing again in the in the direct instructional kind of literature from a cognitive psych or educational psych perspective that would suggest that, you know, uh, instruction should be associated with being critical of performance or nasty. Uh, I think that there's always that vision, isn't there, of somebody instructing and the first thing that comes to people's minds is kind of that coach bellowing on the sidelines. And mm -hmm. again, that isn't that isn't what direct instruction is. That is that is something completely different. Um, so, you know, there's there's a need and appreciation i think to understand these things better and for us to be able to describe um different approaches and styles better in terms of what they mean and what they look like i think just on the point of john wooden that's just reminded me there's an excellent podcast um and i'm trying to find it now while we talk um but a really really good podcast that was done with uh john wooden um talking about direct instruction it, it was excellent and I'm just if we can just hold on a minute I'll just try and find it because it'll be I think um, something that it would be really useful and actually contributes really nicely to this um, to this kind of discussion but yeah I think we can also put it in the resources as, as well if you uh, bring it up there but I think that um, again we get a bit of a snapshot view of something and that's another thing with systematic observation. Sometimes it only gives you a snapshot of what was happening at that particular time with those particular players in that particular club. Yeah. And it, again, it's not somewhat generalizable to other things that are going on in order that we can, um, like I say, generalise, whereas we probably need to be more specific and nuanced. And I will go back to yeah. the work of the Australian group here on Moston and Ashworth's work, because I think when you said about splitting hairs over different behaviours, I think their work in terms of uh, looking at the teaching or coaching styles uh, with Moston and Ashworth's spectrum is trying to overcome some of the, the criticisms that you, you're talking about too. Um, so yeah so it's john it's john wooden and cognitive science it's called 
Um, so that's the name of the podcast. Um, and as I say, it was, so it's in the education podcast. It, it is, it's, it's a 20, 25 minute. I think it's about 22 minutes or something, but it is like really, really nicely done. Um, and again, very digestible, but it, it links really closely to, to some of the things that we've been talking about. And again, you know, that, that is coming from a, obviously, a, a, you know, a well, well, a more than well recognized and well considered coach but somebody who, who is expert and uh, he talks about kind of his approach and how that links to some of the literature in the cognitive sciences. And the final thing on when we talk about cognitive load theory, the premise of the cognitive load theory is that as humans, we only hold a certain amount of information in yeah. our minds at one point in time. And if we want to become experts, we need to store more of that knowledge in long-term working memory. So experts of, as you alluded to, I think earlier, spent more time working out problems, storing those in uh, long-term working memory for easier retrieval. And we also um, yes. build better connections between that material so we can draw on that quicker uh, because of the schema we've developed, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that is it. And, and so because our working memory can only hold so much information at once. So again, I think it's still debated in terms of but predominantly between like three to five pieces of information. Yeah. So with that in mind, and, and I, you know, I, I look at this and I think about it from a, a, a very practical coaching point of view in terms of how many things do we ask our players to do. So this is where if, um, you know, if we're, if we're instructing and giving loads of different things, and clearly that's not very good instruction because we're still overwhelming the working memory because we're asking our um, athletes and players to attend to too much. But the environment can also ask us to attend to too much if it's mm -hmm. too complex. And again, beyond our proximal zone of development. So if there's too much going on in the environment and it's too chaotic, then that's where the notion of modifications and constraints or whatever other words get used are useful in terms of thinking about how do we bring this kind of environment or this game or this this situation um, within that zone of proximal development so there's still a challenge for the athlete or player but not too much that it's beyond their capability because then that links with um, this notion of kind of enjoyment and success and we know that um, perceived competence is a really really important factor to continuing to do something so if we don't perceive that we're having success from something then we won't continue to participate in it and that's kind of then links to some of that kind of discussion around enjoyment and motivations or and and kind of or, or learning and motivation and, and which yeah. way around it is mm -hmm. so um so that that's really important from that perspective that we're not giving people too many challenging things to do and as i say and then if it's if it's too easy then that's where we become equally bored and frustrated because we don't feel like we're getting better at anything so these are all really interesting concepts, which we need to try and think about how we tie them together to understand the type of learning environments that we need to create and then the time of type of instructional support that we need to provide. Yeah. And I think that links well to like the positive pedagogy notion of trying to get into um, flow states and, you know, the yeah. development is very related to that. So what are the key bits of information we need to learn? How are we going to impart those? If we are using a small sided modified game, why is there a bit? Why is there one modification put on the game? How am I going to give um, direct instructions or task-related um, focus to these? How am I going to develop the cognitive uh, architecture of the players whilst we're doing this through analogies, through feedback, yeah. um, through specific learning cues? And where does question? Yeah. Where do questions come in in terms of uh, developing that architecture? Yeah, and this is where we have to be very careful then about being able to prescribe like um, kind of some very generic like principles of effective coaching because, in my opinion, they don't really exist. So we can't just say, I'll oh, do this or do that um, without giving it a context and without understanding kind of the, the learners. Now, that makes things quite challenging for coaches because sometimes they will want that stuff. Just just tell me what I need to do. and. And so there's some principles which we can base our practice on, like well-established principles. But the way that we exercise those principles um, really are, are dependent upon developing coaches' capacity and capability to understand how much to exercise something at what point um, and how much. So, so that's really where I think the focus needs to be with coaches rather than saying, do this and you'll get that. It's 
well, here's some principles which we know kind of work and there's some, some established evidence that underpins it. Mm-hmm. But then really it's about teaching them how to work with those principles and how to flex them um, depending upon the situations that they find themselves in. Yeah, and I think we have chatted a bit about the last question in terms of implications. I just, I do think there are some implications though that we haven't talked about maybe for governing bodies of sport and things like that. that mm. And I think you hit the nail on the head is, where in coaching education with governing bodies of sport, I'm not saying we do this as well at university either. I think we're sort of realizing that, and this is why we're doing the podcast, hopefully to sort of push people's buttons and steer, you know, give them strongly guided instruction yeah. to, uh, to take on board some of this information and go to the literature. Um, but to what extent maybe have governing bodies started to understand that some of this educational, um, cognitive psychology literature might be important within their programming yeah Yeah, i mean um i mean i can't say across the piece because i I obviously understand what certain national governing bodies are doing more than others um so i've got to be very careful that i don't speak generically here because i'm not aware of, of what some national governing bodies coach education um kind of looks like but I think that the ones that I am aware of, there's, there's definitely seems to be a recognition now towards um, better appreciating and understanding um, some of this work. Um, but, but, but I guess, again, it's, it's constantly challenging kind of national governing bodies and national sporting organisations around the evidence that they're drawing upon and how kind of valid or how, um, you know, how established or, you know, how, I guess in... In a roundabout way, I'm saying, what do we, are we, how confident are we of some of the things that we are purporting through coach education? You know, if we was to ask people to flag up the specific literature that underpins the points that they make, how how able are they to do that? And I would still question that. So, mm-hmm. I think that um, you know, there's a lot of research suggests this and research says that, but I'm never completely aware of what research is actually being referred to. And then if we were to dig down and read that research, does it actually tell us the things that we're reporting that it does tell us, if that makes sense? And so there's always a caution around that. And, and listen, no one paper, no one study, um, you know, can do everything and nor is it set up to do everything. And it's, it's about drawing upon a body of work um, in order to make some judgments about what we should or shouldn't be doing. And, and like I've said before, this is this kind of difference that Paul Kirshner talks about when he, when he uses the term evidence-informed versus evidence-based. Yeah. You know, in, in education, which coaching and teaching are obviously part of, um, you know, evidence-based practice is, is, is not something that we can achieve. He, you know, he talks about that as being impossible um, in the way that we understand these terms in the medical sciences, because um, X does equal Y, e, i.e. we have a headache, we take a, a tablet and our headache goes. Mm-hmm. So that's evidence-based, like when we ch- check in or, or trialing these drugs. Um, in education, because there are so many variables at play, um, right through to like how the athlete or player turns up to the session, the mindset they're in, what kind of a night's sleep have they had, have they eaten that day, um, through to our mood and our how what kind of a day we've had, right through to the environmental conditions and what are the other kids like, and is there newbies in the group, and all of this type of stuff. Which you know, and and listen, the list could be however long you want it to be. Um, so the best we can strive for is evidence informed, which is. You know, we can't be certain about anything, but what we can do is we can draw upon the body of work that's available. Um, and even then, the things might not work out as they had done in other studies. But at least we can kind of be confident in our own mind that we are doing something from a, a, a point of view where it has a rationale and a justification. Yeah. And I think another point that I would add to the conversation is potentially we've missed a trick in yeah. coaching education by not drawing on the educational psychology literature um and i know it's sort of blown up a little bit more in education more broadly uh sorry more recently um but i think and we're not hopefully just jumping on a bandwagon but as you've alluded to there is historical evidence that can inform our instruction and teaching within a coaching setting by using the the literature moving forward yeah well, it's interesting, Steve. Uh, my sister uh, is currently doing a like a teach first, so her uh, whatever it's whatever the teacher it's a teacher training for two years, and 
Um, so she had an intensive thing over the summer. She was obviously supposed to be face to face, but it ended up being online. And she was kind of getting um, getting exposed to Roshanshine's principles and cognitive load theory as part of her teacher training. And she was asking me about this stuff. And it's really ironic that I had kind of probably for the six to nine months previous to that started reading more around this and its application and coaching. And that was basically her core of her curriculum as part of that teacher training and continues to be over the course of the next two years. Um, and so really, really interesting that they do it for that. And again, I think that tells us something that if this is a forms a significant or core part of teacher training um, in mainstream education, then again, surely there's something, something in it for, for coaching and coach education. Yeah. And you, again, um, allude to this in the last sentence of the paper where you say we contend that drawing upon the work undertaken in the broader educational psychology literature offers scope to rethink direct instruction in coaching and thus continue to drive toward evidence-informed practice which is this you know this is probably a nice way to uh, to conclude but i think uh, i know we've jumped around a little bit and we've sort of maybe used yeah. some terms that people may not understand uh, like completely with that you know we might not have unpacked them but we do have to sort of keep to our time but I'm happy to revisit some of these things uh, with yourself and others as we sort of move forward on the podcast so people yeah. can reach out to us and give us a, a nudge if, if they need any support and I'll put some resources online with the episode so you were going to say just, on, just one just one thing yeah just sorry just one thing to finish on Steve is that you know I'm I'm still trying to like work this stuff out in my head as well um and so like you know i guess that's that's an important caveat of of what i'm thinking and writing and reading about at the minute is i'm trying to kind of make those links and um you know i'm not i'm not completely clear and i think about this stuff a lot about how it fits and so you know i, I guess from a personal perspective i'm kind of on this journey to understanding this work and how it links across and fits across because i certainly don't have anywhere close to uh, the answers for, for everything at the minute and you know i'm i'm as open-minded as the next person to be um to be confronted and to be kind of questioned about this stuff in terms of does it work is it applicable um but this is kind of i guess where i'm at at this point in time with some of this work yeah and i think um it's it's a fair comment because i think also we need to do some specific studies with this work yeah. in sport coaching too with coaches out in the field um, and also trial the stuff out with coach education in um, you know with national governing bodies university education that kind of thing so hopefully this podcast can be one thing that adds a bit of a stimulus to this work so we'll see how it goes from there yeah well we all appreciate um, right. your time on the podcast so we'll look forward to you joining us again in a subsequent episode if if you know there's a bit of um interest in us carrying this forward for further discussion so thanks for your time great thanks steve no thank you cheers